from KUT and KUTX Studios. This, this, this is you. KUT. KUT, Austin. Stop. This is KUT Weekend for the third weekend of June 2019. Thank you for listening. I'm Nathan Bernier with KUT 90.5, the NPR station in Austin, Texas. Here's what we got for you this week. More money for public education signed into law. You cannot overstate the magnitude of the law that I'm about to sign. Hundreds of lakefront homes in Austin not on the city tax rolls. In my mind, I'm just sitting here thinking, that can't be true. That cannot be true. And who's that Krispy Kreme employee who's so positive all the time? No, when you travel up and down the roads, just look out and say, <laughs> it's not as bad as it seems. Those stories and more in this edition of KUT Weekend. So first of all, thank you all for being here today to um, recognize the great work that our staff members do every single day. We are starting to see the outcomes of the Texas legislative session take effect in real life, outside the dome of the Capitol. And this is one example. The head of the largest school district in Central Texas, Austin ISD Superintendent Paul Cruz, announcing raises for employees. And keep in mind... Their position before the legislature passed its school finance plan was a 1% raise for AISD teachers. And then the legislature passed an additional $11.6 billion in school funding. And I'm pleased to say that AISD in its finance system is looking at uh, at employee pay. And we are going to invest around $48 million in employee compensation, where the state requirement was uh, $21 million dollars we're more than doubling that amount uh, to truly recognize our staff members for the great work that they do every single day. So what does this actually mean? What is it going to look like? Well, for teachers with five or more years or with more than five years experience, it's a 7% increase in pay. For all staff members, well, we can clap. We can clap. We can do something. You got to give me some applause moment, right? I don't know. Otherwise, like... Is this thing working? I don't know, right? Hello? Uh, Can you hear me now? All the other employees would get a 6% raise. Uh, Now, this has to be approved by the school board, and they are scheduled to vote on it Monday night. But we know at least some board members support this, and it has the support of the AISD Employees Union Education Austin. Ken Zarefis is their president. We did this. 7%. For everybody above five years, 6% for everybody else, $1,000 more for bilingual teachers, $500 more for all special ed teachers, decompression of pay within trades and administrative assistance. This is the most robust and powerful compensation package in the 21 years that I've been in this district or working with the district. Governor Abbott signed that school finance bill into law this week. You cannot overstate the magnitude of the law that I'm about to sign, uh, because this is a monumental moment in public education history in the state of Texas. House Bill 2 includes an increase in the basic funding amount per student, the basic allotment, and about a third of that has to go to raising pay for educators. HB2 also has more money for school facilities, additional resources for children living in severe poverty, and the law includes $5 billion to lower property tax rates by an average of $0.08 per $100 of evaluation next year and $0.13 per $100 of evaluation 
in 2021. And speaking of property taxes, here's another bill Governor Abbott signed into law at another made-for-the-media event. These are easy press coverage for the governor, these news conferences, easy story for the media. But the implications of, of, of this legislation is important. So Governor Abbott signed a priority bill into law that is supposed to slow the growth of property taxes across Texas. It's Senate Bill 2. And it will require voter approval if cities and counties want to raise local property tax revenues by more than 3.5% a year. Right now, that cap is 8%, and an election is not automatically triggered. There's only an election if enough signatures are gathered. So there was a ceremonial bill signing at Wally's Burger Express in Austin, and the owner, Robert Mayfield, thanked lawmakers for passing the measure saying small businesses have often been forgotten in the conversation about property taxes. When you see a proposal for property tax increase, what you normally hear the talk about is, okay, well, there's going to be a property tax increase and, you know, it's probably going to be another $200 for each homeowner. They never mention businesses at all. SB2 has faced a lot of opposition from city and county officials who said it will constrain their ability to fund vital public services. And we're going to be getting a clearer picture from the city of Austin government as they put out their budget projections of what their spending is going to look like under SB2, under that 3.5 percent limit. And then probably a second budget if they decide to hold an election. We could see tax rate elections as soon as November 2020 under this bill. So what is really going to happen under SB2? Andrew Schneider filed this report from Houston. Arc Specialties of West Houston is a small company that makes big industrial robots. Company president Dan Alford says property taxes on his buildings are a huge expense. I checked it, and annually it's about $5,000 per employee. At 55 employees, that works out to $275,000 a year. Every year, uh, we end up having to protest the taxes because there's a huge rate increase every year, and this takes time and money. Alford says that if he doesn't have to worry about how high his taxes are going to climb every year, he'll be able to invest more in his business. That includes hiring more people. The point of this legislation is to allow everybody not to have to go through the expense and cost of fighting these taxes each year, because it's not only costly to us business owners, it's costly to the state. Texas has a reputation of being a low-tax state, but it actually has one of the highest effective property tax rates in the nation, close behind New Jersey and Illinois. Anything that can bring Texas down in the rankings makes it a less expensive place to do business. But what about ordinary homeowners? This is my most recent one. At a modest bungalow in Houston's Sunset Heights neighborhood, retired teacher Lisa Beidelsbach sounds skeptical. I'm really searching on literature that will tell me more about what's going to happen to our taxes. Beidelsbach says that when she bought her home nearly 30 years ago, her annual tax bill was less than $1,000. She says last year it was more than six times that, and that was after filing a successful protest. As far as the tax relief, our taxes are not going to go down. I'm hoping they will slow down a little bit, because at this rate, by the time my taxes lower when I get 65, I'll be paying close to almost $10,000. Beidelsbach says she's gone back to work as a substitute teacher to help pay the bills. But even that might not be enough to cover her property taxes if the law doesn't provide the relief it promises. Her message to lawmakers? If you truly want to help us, let's revisit this and see what actually happened to us with this law. And you say that it's tax relief? Well, let's see if we got a tax relief. 
none of this is surprising to Ed Emmett. The former Harris County judge says people do need relief from property taxes, and they will get some, from the school finance bill, which cuts property taxes statewide by a net $5 billion. But as for SB2? Make no mistake, the so-called property tax reform bill doesn't lower anybody's property taxes at all. Emmett says the way the state went about trying to provide relief will do more harm than good because property taxes are the sole source of revenue for county governments. Harris County has almost 2 million people who live in unincorporated Harris County that they're responsible for, uh, the county's responsible for providing infrastructure and services. Dallas County has less than 10,000. How can you apply the exact same one-size-fits-all formula for two counties that are so different? Emmett says if the state wants to provide real relief, it will need to come up with another funding source to offset the loss in property taxes, something lawmakers tried but failed to do in the session that just ended. In Houston, I'm Andrew Schneider. The Trump administration has worked to weaken safety rules that went into place after the Deepwater Horizon oil disaster. That was back in 2010, creating an environmental catastrophe. So in 2016, new regulations were adopted. They were set to be rolled back last month. But as KUT's Mose Bouchelle reports, they are now the focus of a lawsuit brought by environmental groups and public health groups. The blowout at the Deepwater Horizon rig in 2010 killed 11 and caused over 130 million gallons of crude oil to discharge into the Gulf of Mexico. After that, the government strengthened rules to increase standards and inspections of blowout preventers and safety equipment. But those new rules are set to be rolled back next month by the Trump administration. It says the rollback will save industry millions of dollars a year. Chris Eaton is a lawyer with Earth Justice, one of the groups that filed the lawsuit to block the changes. That's the problem, is they, they gave short shrift to, to worker safety and protection of the environment and our coastlines and spent the bulk of their analysis looking at how much money it was going to save industry. Earth Justice alleges that the Department of the Interior disregarded extensive evidence and expert findings that went into the original rule. Mose Bouchelle, KT News. This week, the Trump administration did not impose tariffs of 5% on imports from Mexico as threatened. Last weekend, there was an announcement that wasn't going to happen. But as KUT's Jimmy Moss reports, the state of Texas has already felt the effects of trade tensions with Mexico. Economist Ray Perryman of the Perryman Group in Waco says just the threat of tariffs has created real problems for Texas and elsewhere. The uncertainty is a real problem. A very good example we had just a couple of months ago that when the president was talking about closing the border, it was a big brouhaha about it. And then he says, well, I won't close the border now, but I may close it in a year. Well, what that does is it just creates that pale of uncertainty of people not knowing what's going to happen next. And that causes real economic problems. Those concerns were echoed in a report from the Federal Reserve published last week. The Dallas Fed said the economic outlook for Texas is clouded by the trade dispute with Mexico. Nationwide, hiring slowed last month with just 75,000 jobs created. Jimmy Moss, KUT News. Acclaimed Texas screenwriter, producer, and photographer Bill Whitliff has died. Credits for the longtime Austinite include the TV miniseries Lonesome Dove, the Oscar award-winning film Legends of the Fall, and several westerns starring Willie Nelson. KUT's Joseph Leahy has that. 
Whitliff's creative work championed cowboys and farmers and people from small towns like Blanco in the hill country where he came of age. His TV adaptation of Lonesome Dove helped revive the Western genre and won 18 Emmy Awards, among others. You remember old man Barlow? That buffalo hooked him bad. Old man Barlow was a slow thinker, kind of like somebody else I could name. Well, he was a slow walker, too, when that buffalo got through with him. In a 1981 interview, he described his creative process as following the unknown. So, uh, you know, the process for me is you put one thing down and then you see where it comes from and maybe where it goes. Whitliff lived with his wife Sally in Austin until he died Sunday. He was 79 years old. Joseph Leahy, KUT News. Housing affordability is one of the defining challenges for this era of economic growth in the Austin area. Because even after someone buys a home or rents a property, as the value of that property goes up, so does the annual tax bill. But some of the most desirable homes in Austin, a few hundred right on Lake Austin, are not subject to any city property taxes. That may be about to change, but let's bring in Philip Jankowski. He's a reporter with the Austin American Statesman, has a big story on this. Hey, Phil. Yeah, hi. What are these properties on Lake Austin people aren't paying city taxes on? Yeah, we're talking about 400 properties. The large majority of them are what you would consider very idyllic waterfront homes, mansions, really, for lack of a better word. An average property value of $2.1 million, some of them going all the way up to $13.5 million. Um, and some of that is skewed by properties that are really low value because they're their own parcel, but they're technically just a boat dock that is valued at $10,000. So the $2.1 million is probably a little low when we're talking about the average value of the homes that are that are out there. How did it come to be that hundreds of homes are not paying any city property taxes, even though they're in the Austin city limits? Yeah, it dates all the way back to 1891. That's when the city was authorized by the state to annex roughly 22 miles of shoreline extending out from the city's center all the way out to basically the entirety of Lake Austin's shores. Most of the homes that are subject to this kind of stop right at about where Emmelong Park starts, right at this sort of southern tip of a bend in the river. And so when it was annexed, I guess the idea was they weren't receiving city services, so they shouldn't have to pay city property taxes. What happened there? The city annexed them because this is where they were getting all of their drinking water from. So the idea was to start having some sort of protections of the shoreline there to make sure that the water quality in the river was good. And that basically continued on. You know, back then, that would have been like the frontier or whatever. Nobody lived out there. As the city got bigger and bigger in 1891, it was only 15,000 people that lived here. And so as the city got bigger and bigger, it spread out and more wealth came and people started looking at these properties as idyllic places to build their homestead. And so 
it remained that way for a long time um, until roughly late 1985. And that's when I don't know where exactly it came from. I'm still doing research on that. But somebody started sending notices. The city was going to try to put them onto the tax rolls. And it sent out notices saying, we're going to tax you. Obviously, they did not want to be taxed. So they organized and got together. And in early 1986, they brought something to the uh, city council, which basically said, we're going to make sure that this is codified, that these properties are within the city limits, but we're not going to tax them for the reasons that you mentioned, that the city did not or does not, that's, up, that's open to interpretation even at the time, provide adequate city services to them. Way back in the day, they basically said, there's no way, it's impossible for us to provide any city services to anyone. Now that's more possible and indeed is happening. What kinds of city services are these property owners receiving? How much of a say do they have when it comes to municipal elections? So everyone gets to vote. That's a very good point. I'm glad you brought that up. So everyone gets to vote. They have access to police and EMS and fire services. Fire is a little more limited, actually, because there's a lot of mutual aid agreements that basically say, we're not going to wait for a a city of Austin fire truck to come all the way out there if there's an emergency service district that is, you know, a half mile away and they're going to get there much more quickly because we're talking about a house might be burning down. So, And then there's also uh, city leaders like to point out park services and library services as well um, are extended to them. But uh, the parks thing is a little sort of I mean, I guess everyone has access to park services. I could travel in from Cleveland and have access to Silker Park. Right. (laughs) Uh, the, the services that they don't have are water, wastewater, and trash. They are not connected to the larger water system and uh, awesome resource recovery. The city's trash service does not pick up their trash. How much tax revenue would these properties generate if they were on the city's rolls? It's estimated that uh, it would create, at least last year, it would have created $3 million in revenue for the city. So this morning, Austin City Council members Greg Kassar and Jimmy Flanagan held a news conference, and I want to play a part of that for you. So good morning, everybody. Uh, Councilmember Jimmy Flanagan here. You know, when we found out about this earlier this year, at first it felt uh, impossible. There's, there's no possible way this could be happening in our city. These property owners are Austinites. They are in the city. And I think that they would describe themselves in that way. And I think that's a really important part of why Uh, On the June 20th agenda, we have sponsored an item to repeal the 1986 mistake on the lake ordinance. Will city council change this? I don't like to read the tea leaves on it, but at this point, it looks like they have what is approaching a majority on there. I mean, just on the sponsors on this um, that have already lined up, they've, they've got four, possibly five council members that have already signaled that they will support this, and they only need one more person. Given what you led the, opened up the segment with, the talks about um, affordability and everything like that, it seems to me likely that it will pass. But, I mean, we are talking about a large consortium of very well-heeled people, and we don't know what kind of effort they might be able to amass. Do I think they'll be able to stop it by June 20th when the meeting happens? No. But, I mean, who knows what sort of legal challenges might arise. Jimmy Flanagan said he was shocked to find this out. What was your reaction when you discovered this? 
Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, I heard just a little bit, a bit about it. And in my mind, I'm just sitting here thinking that can't be true. That cannot be true. That's ridiculous if that is true. And by the end of the day, I am sitting there just clicking on property after property on the Travis County Appraisals District website and just saying to myself, my God, this is just house after house after house that looking at the valuations, 3 million, 4 million, 5 million, 10 million, 13 million. And it's like no taxes paid to the city of Austin. So I also was shocked by by this. Phil Jankowski is a City Hall reporter for the Austin American Statesman. You can read his story about this at statesman.com. Phil, thanks for coming into KUT. Thank you. When a crime is committed, police gather evidence. And in cases of sexual assault, getting DNA evidence to a lab for testing has never been a guarantee in Texas, leaving evidence gathering dust for years, sometimes for decades, in police evidence closets. And the people at the center of these cases, the, the survivors, are left in the dark. But that all soon may become a thing of the past. The Texas Standard's Kristen Cabrera reports. Horror stories of untested, long-forgotten, and even moldy sexual assault evidence kits have always topped Texas headlines. And it's been on Becky O'Neill's mind for a long time. I can't imagine that there'd be anything worse from knowing that your kit sat there and nobody ever cared enough about it to send it to see if there was any DNA hits on it or anything. In Amarillo, she's been a sexual assault nurse examiner for almost 30 years. If you had the courage to go through an exam, it's nice to know that that kit's not going to sit there. The image of a victim's traumatic experience being sealed away in a box left to gather dust in a dark and damp evidence room, continues to move many in the state to take action. In a few months, the Texas Department of Public Safety will roll out a new online portal that allows sexual assault survivors to monitor, in real time, the location of their evidence kit. For Peter Stout, president and CEO of the Houston Forensic Science Center, it's about time. I find myself ranting a bit about somehow in this country we managed to get a $20 pizza to somebody's doorstep in 20 minutes correctly. It is infuriating that we can't get somebody's evidence that affects somebody's life to the lab reliably. I mean, this, these are the kinds of systems that are necessary to get that stuff there. Last year, DPS bought the services of an online portal used to digitally track evidence collection kits. The purchase of the system called TrackIt is the result of legislation passed two years ago, authored by Democratic State Representative Donna Howard of Austin. Sonia Corrales is an advocate for the Houston Area Women's Center and says adding better transparency and communication between victims and law enforcement was needed. Typically, what was happening is that survivors tend to struggle to get information about their cases. And a lot of times they don't really know how the evidence is being used. Evidence that's collected through what some consider to be an additionally traumatic process. These kits can contain a wide range of evidence samples off a victim's body. Saliva, semen, hair, clothing fibers, swabs from intimate parts of the body. Anything that could potentially identify an assailant. O'Neill says that once a nurse sent off a kit for testing, they were rarely ever updated on its status. Before this tracking system, once it left our hands, we had no idea what happened to it. We were never informed when the kit got sent. We were... Rarely informed if there was ever a DNA hit. 
The new TrackIt system is meant to address this issue. Through the online portal, it makes status updates on the kit accessible to all those working on the case. That means law enforcement, the nurse examiner, the laboratory, and prosecutor. But most importantly to Lieutenant Ricardo Mendina with the El Paso Police Department, it gives the victim peace of mind and allows them to remain anonymous. The victim has that reassurance that they'll be able to actually enter the system and see whether to track their sexual assault kid is. They'll know where it's at, at what stage. That's the diff- that's the huge difference here. It's more for the victim giving that reassurance that they need at times to know the kid is moving forward, that it's not just sitting somewhere. There is, however, a moment in the new system's processes that gives survivor advocate Sonia Corrales from Houston a reason to pause. The password, for example, I think that the, the forensic nurses are going to provide the password to them and how to get into the system. So what happens is this. Immediately after entering the kit into TrackIt, a nurse is supposed to hand the kit's corresponding login card to the victim. This card contains the vital instructions of how a victim can enter the online portal to monitor their kit. But when survivors um, are at the hospital and there's evidence being collected from them, you know, because they're, going, they're undergoing this forensic exam, they're in trauma, right? They're experiencing trauma. And so uh, we weren't sure how that, you know, how a survivor is expected to remember that whole process. According to DPS, if a survivor loses their login credentials before being able to set up their account on TrackIt, a law enforcement officer or a forensic nurse will be able to provide them with new login information. Corrales says this is where community-based advocacy groups can step in and support the survivor at the hospital and ensure that they have all the information they need in regards to this new system. It is important to get continued training on the process so that we're able to, to guide survivors, you know, through this. O'Neill says a nurse's job isn't just to collect evidence, but to be there for the survivor. To be a sexual assault nurse, you have to be a very empathetic person. So we're seeing them at possibly one of their most moments of their life. The statewide implementation of this program is scheduled for September 1st of this year. But today, four cities, Lubbock, Amarillo, Arlington and Houston will begin using the TrackIt program as part of a test run, while El Paso is set to begin its rollout next Monday. Medina says he's not expecting any issues to come up with these early implementations. Either way, the El Paso police officer is excited to see the communication gap between victims and law enforcement bridged with the help of this program. I think it's a good idea what we're doing, the direction we're heading. I think it's going to be helpful in the long run. For the Texas Standard, I'm Kristen Cabrera. Austin's five-county metro area is home to more than two million people. You interact with a lot of these people each day, some you will never see again. But what about those people you want to see again? The ones who leave an impression. The people who make Austin a great place to live and that maybe you'd like to know more about. That's why we started a project called Hi, Who Are You? We're kicking our project off by following a teacher from Austin who's about to meet someone she wanted to know a bit better. Hi, my name is Christina Coro, and I'm a native Austinite. Right now, we are in front of the Krispy Kreme donut shop on Stasny Lane. Every time I've come through this Krispy Kreme, he has been one of the most positive, happiest individuals and has always put a smile on my face. 
it's the way he greets people. It's just the energy that he has when he talks to people. And this is strictly through the intercom on, you know, when you're going through the drive-thru. Even a couple of times I've come in there and he's handed me a donut. He's always fills me up with joy and just puts a huge smile on my face. All right, let's go meet him. Okay. Hey, how's everybody doing? Hey. Hey, that's what I'm talking about. Hey, Sylvester, it's a oh, pleasure okay. to meet you. Hey, you too, you too. I'm Christina. Christina, it's a yes. pleasure. My name is Sylvester Myers, uh, born and raised here, Austinite. Yes, that's what I'm saying, hook them horns. 43 years old, lived here all my life, so we kind of just make everybody feel welcome from all over. No, but it's just like every time I've come through the drive-thru, I mean, from the very first time I came through and you helped me, I was like, who is this guy? Why? He's so positive. He's so happy. And you just, wow. I mean, look at me. I'm like smiling hey, just well, because. You know? I'll tell you, it's because. What keeps you so positive? Uh, it really is the best day of my life. Uh, yeah, every day so I wake up, that's, it's the start. That's my first start. Yeah. Waking up, I decide whether we get a challenge or what, we're going to make it the best day. One of the things that I like about coming here in the morning, it's early in the morning. It really is. I mean, you start really early, right? Yeah, I'll yeah. start normally between 4 a.m. Yeah. You know, the times I've come through is just started my day on such hey. a positive note. Hey, you're the greatest. You know? Yeah, and I'm a school teacher, and so I, you know, take that with me into the classroom and, you know, just try to kind of emulate yeah. a little bit of that myself. Well, I wanted to thank you for that, Sylvester. Hey, well, I want to thank you. Know, you. We don't get enough of that in this world, and well, well, especially I, in the times we're in. So you're the greatest I, of all time, sweetie. I just want to, you, you just bring out the best in me. Out of all these many years, this is a true story, and me and my boss talk about it all the time, but uh, I walked by here about three years, and I remember uh, that due to the lack of finances, I couldn't even afford to pay my mortgage. And because of that, I remember falling on family, hard time, and I, I remember walking through here, I just said, I, pr I, I prayed walking, and I just said, give me a sign that it's gonna be all right. Walked in here, this man gave me an application 10 minutes later, um, he said, you know what, I'm going to set an interview up. I just like your smile. That's what boosted me up, really. Through all the heartaches, I found out, guess what, it wasn't as bad as I thought. Knowing that I'm going to make it. I've seen I made it to that point, and I'm going to make it again. So everybody that come through here, brighten their day up. I know people with a lot of money and they still down depressed. Know when you travel up and down the roads, just, just look out and say, <laughs> it's not as bad as it seems. And go home, hug your family and, and just be thankful. If you be thankful for the small, you never know what's gonna happen to receive the greater. And we all deal with pressure, but we gonna find a solution to deal with pressure. After you shed it a tear, take them tears, make turn it into some joy, cause that's that's what I learned to do. I got tired of crying, I got tired of being around depression, so I took that and said, you know what, today I'm gonna make that. I'm gonna make that change, and guess what? You coming with me? What do you think, Christina? Oh my God. Uh, well, <laughs> that's what I, I mean. Tears to my eyes a couple of times here. Um, I think that's beautiful. I mean, that's kind of I, I totally agree with the. The gratitude. Um, you're absolutely right, Sylvester. It's those little things. Like sometimes I have to sit and just be grateful for 
I have a healthy lunch today, yes. you know? Oh, oh, um, yeah. I get to go to school and make a difference in kids' lives, or um, I love my, my, I'm grateful for my daughter, you know? I mean, just little things like that. And I do find that the more I focus on those positive things, uh, it's true. It's the happier I am. I don't know if people know it or not, but the best is yet to come. That's one of my slogans. The best is yet to come. I'm going to take that with me. If I cannot drive nothing else into the radio land, understand that the best is yet to come. So, I mean, so next time I'm having a bad day, I can yes. just come in here. Hey, you right? come in here, I'm going to high five you. Hey, hey, well, you know, <laughs> I just love you dearly, my friend. Thank you, Sylvester. Hey. Thank you so much. You it's so great to finally meet you. Hey, well, you know what? You, you know? Welcome home, and we family Thank now. That's Sylvester Myers. He works at the Krispy Kreme on Stastny Lane. And Austin teacher, Christina Coro. If there's someone who makes your neighborhood a better place, let us know at hiwhoareyou.kut.org. That's KUT Weekend for the third weekend of June 2019. You can subscribe to this podcast at weekend.kut.org, email any questions or comments to weekend at kut.org, or just ask me on Twitter. I'm at KUT Nathan. Our theme music is by RAC. Thank you for listening. I'm Nathan Bernier with KUT 90.5 and KUT.org.